Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am really, really pleased today to be here with John Worsley. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Absolutely. So I would like to have you sort of start with telling us about who you are in the world of grief and loss and maybe even why we decided to have you come on the podcast. I mean, I've experienced grief and loss in different ways over the course of my life, of course. For some reason, I was only ever able to feel it when it came to inanimate objects or animals. Hmm. But with people, when I lost people in my life for some reason, I never felt a whole lot until a year and a half ago when my wife died suddenly. Yeah. And so that was the overwhelming experience that led me to where I am now. And I, the pretty much right at, right after she died in, in the hospital room there with her, I just had this thought that at least, you know, in my life and, you know, in my experience of talking to people, people don't really talk in any detail at all about what they go through when they're grieving. It's a hundred percent. I knew that, you know, there were books and there were experts and all that, but I've never heard anybody talking in any level of detail or, or vulnerability or honesty or anything about what it's actually like for them. And I wanted, my only thought was I, I wanted to try and change that. Yeah. And the place that I had that I felt like I could do that was Facebook, which somehow miraculously for me has been a, a pretty safe place. <laughs> So I just started sharing, you know, little bits of moments of what I was experiencing. And after maybe a week or so, I started to feel like, oh, people are probably tired of this by now. <laughs> but thankfully, I had a friend who encouraged me yeah. to keep going. And so I did. And and the response over overall was certainly a lot, it was completely positive and a lot and kind of overwhelming. I never expected mm. to get that much support. It was such a big thing for me that I I did. I kept going and I I started sharing more. And it, it over time it really turned into like a private blog, you know, where I would think ahead about what I wanted to post about and I would spend time, you know, on what I was writing. And a couple months in, so I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, you know, I could see, I could see what you're, what you're posting being useful for counselors. And I, it hadn't occurred to me to think like that, which is good. I think <laughs> I didn't, you know, any level of self-consciousness would have ruined right. the entire thing. It ruins the writing, <laughs> doesn't it? It does. Yes. When you're, yeah. Yeah. But that, that planted the seed and it kind of percolated and, you know, the idea of helping people certainly appealed to me a lot. That was what really made the difference is that it, it wasn't just generic support. You know, I got, I got feedback and messages from so many people saying various ways that they were finding what I was writing to be helpful. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't even just people who have experienced something similar. It was people who haven't lost a, a close person to them. You know, one of my friends just felt more inspired to be more honest on Facebook about what, you know, what his life was like. And, you know, it's people that I hadn't seen in 30 years, as well as people that I, you know, that are neighbors of mine. 
And it just kept coming. And I, it was impossible to ignore the fact that I was somehow, you know, managing to do something helpful for people. And eventually I concluded that if they a relatively small number of people I know on Facebook, you know, would respond this way, then maybe, you know, there are other people in the world that- Statistics are such that it probably- Yeah, there are probably more people in the world that would find us helpful. And, you know, I can't control, I can't change the fact that this horrible thing happened, losing Amy, but the idea of something good coming out of it is extremely meaningful. So I uh, eventually I concluded that I was, I would, I would do this. And I, I didn't, since it was the kind of the rawness of what I was running on Facebook that people were responding to, I wanted to preserve that, which is why the book is more of a journal than anything else. Yeah. Tell folks the name of the book. And and again, I think the structure of the book is unique. So maybe you can describe what the writing, sort of the format of it. Right. So it's a collection of the first six months of my posts on Facebook about grieving Amy and losing her and all of that. And along with what I call reflections, which is, which captures the fact that over time, I wanted to share places where I had a a different perspective on what I had originally posted. Maybe I'd learned something, you know, different since then. And there were times when, despite my best efforts, I left out information that was important to understand what was going on or, or cases where I just, just assumed information that my Facebook friends already knew, which the reader wouldn't necessarily know. And so I wanted to, you know, to give information that would help people get the full meaning out, out of the original, the original post. So yeah, it, it really is more of a, of a journal in that sense. So there's so many things that you are talking about right now that I think are really key to the experience of loss, which turns out to be sort of like global, but as you're going through, it feels really singular and like, like, no, you know, you're inventing the wheel, but I think you're describing social media at its best, the thing that it can do the best, which is have an intimate conversation with a lot of people at once, because one of the things that's really hard for your friends, family, and people who love you when they know that you're going through a hard time is they don't want to bombard you. And so what I hear from people who are trying to support grievers is like, well, it felt awkward to call. It was kind of late. I didn't know if they were okay. And so things like a blog or Facebook or caring bridge that allows you to feel like, okay, I'm in the story without expecting John to tell the story 76 times right? or, or to have to have a family spokesperson who's speaking on your behalf, <laughs> isn't really the same as hearing it from you. And I love the idea. It's making me think, I don't know if you know this book called future widow by Jenny Lisk. Jenny was on the podcast a little while ago. She also, she took her caring bridge. Her husband was diagnosed and died of geoglast Doma very, you know, in a, in a very short period of time. And so her caring bridge posts were very practical. This is what's happening. This is what we need. This is what we're doing. And her reflections were much more emotional. And I think that's probably how she experienced it, that while he was in crisis and ill, she was sort of functioning. Mm -hmm. And then she looked back and, you know, realized had some thoughts about how people had supported her and her family or had some ideas about like, wow, I really, I really was just in a fugue state trying to manage. And I think those things 
are really important truths. Your friend who said counselors could really benefit from this. You know, we don't usually get people like at the moments that they are these really hard frames of mind. What we get in a therapy session is someone telling you about when that, when that happened, they don't usually walk into your office, give it. And so writers, memoirists, people who can really let us in are giving us a gift about what the actual experience of grief and loss is like. And, you know, there's a million books on grief and loss. Some of them are garbage and some of them are great, but I just sort of think it doesn't matter. Keep writing them because we'll always need them because we don't, as you started saying, we don't talk about this enough. We, We don't, we don't, it is not a cultural experience that we sort of hand down across the ages. And we don't, at least in Western culture, we don't really have the same handed down, maybe because we're so many cultures here in the United States, but we don't follow a series of grief rituals that allow us to have sort of like a, an understanding of the threshold of the conversation. Right. Tell me a little bit, because I know from your bio that writing has always been a part of your life and something that you've always been interested in. Did you, did you write, I know you and Amy did maybe some films together, but did you, was, was the writing and the creative part, a part of your life before she died in this way, writing emotionally, or was it more screenwriting and maybe, you know, writing for the job of writing? Yeah. I have never written anything remotely like this before. Yeah. I mean, not even on Facebook, really. Yeah. And it, it's been interesting to me to see different ways that that plays out for people on, on Facebook. There are people who, you know, post about their struggles every day and get hardly any interaction. And there are people who do that and have, you know, dozens of people interacting. And I've never understood what the difference is. Yeah, me either. Me either. Yeah. I, I mean, I I imagine that probably there's some sort of energy that people can feel inside something. And it may be that people responded to your Facebook post because they really were, it was unique to see you sharing in that way. And that that was compelling, but I don't know, you know, I don't really understand how social media works. So I certainly, you know, I can't say. Yeah. It's, it's certainly true that the spirit that I was posting in was ultimately one of giving. So maybe that made a difference. You know, I wasn't posting because I was desperate for help or something Then maybe that helped. I don't know. You know, it's interesting because I, on my platform, I run this writer's workshop, which it's really just prompts that I support people in writing. And the intent is kind of in this narrative therapy way, uh, which you might experience as you talk more about the book, the more you talk about something, the more you sort of get your feet underneath you about what it is you're trying to say about it. And so in the beginning, it can be a little bit difficult, you know, this is what my book is about, or this is my experience with my wife dying, even though you were there, but eventually, you know, you get used to saying the words and they're there in, in grief. I think there is a whole before and after experience. There is my life before this untenable loss. And now I'm trying to sort of, because I have to invite, invent the life after Yeah. Right. And so I'm like putting the bricks on the path as I'm trying to walk them. 
And writing, it turns out, we have some data on this, helps us create the narrative. Mm -hmm. So I came into podcasting after my mom died. And just shortly after my mom died, I couldn't even say those words without just like, you know, disassembling, like the idea that I had to confront the, you know, she died, but that's not what happens now, partly because my brain has caught up with the information. I've done some therapy. I processed it. And also partly because I'm used to saying it, you know, it is the truth. My mom died. This is how she died. So in the beginning of the writing workshop, often we're just writing for process, like just get used to the words. And so the prompts are often process prompts, which means I'm just asking people like, you know, where were you when you found, when you got your terrible news? What was something helpful that someone did for you while you were grieving? It's, it's partly a memory, but it's partly just let's, let's put together your story. Let's assemble your story. What always happens when I run my grief writers workshop is that someone discovers that they are good at writing and that they are now sort of pivoting from writing about what happened to them as like, I want to know myself better, they begin to start writing to convey to others. Right. And others then respond like, oh my God, what you said makes sense to me and it means something to me and I'm so glad that you said it. And it sounds like that because you were maybe already a skilled writer, just the way in which you sat down to process was really engaging, at least to the people around you. And then as people found you, on Facebook. And now as they find your book, I don't think we said the name of your book. So I want to make sure oh, you did. You did ask for that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's called my heart has no home. Yeah. Which is a reference to a Billy Joel song that Amy and I love to sing together. Yeah. Yeah. And then the subtitle is a journal of grief and healing. And it's an interesting subtitle because it could sound like you're going to open it up and fill out a journal you know, cause they're all those journals for grief and healing uh-huh. instead, really it's this beautiful reflection of here's the experience and here's your reflection and the experience. Yeah. It's also serves essentially as a diary for me yeah. because I would have lost track of so much of the thoughts that I had, the experiences I had, the feelings I had. Yeah. If I didn't have this. Yeah. And it's going to help me heal because I go back and I mean, I can't read it without crying, you know, myself. please. That's not a reasonable expectation. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's such a mix of things too. You know, there are a lot of posts about something just happened that, you know, made me cry. Like I, uh, something in a commercial or, you know, seeing her favorite snacks in the grocery store. One of the things I spent a lot of time doing in the first initial months was I ransacked the house and the garage and tried to find everything of hers that I could. And and I went through it all because I was desperate for something new. Yeah. You know, some new Amy, something, you know, I, I having the experience of something, you know, that you're living with every day, just suddenly stop like that. Yeah. was one of the hardest parts of it. And I was just desperate for something, some escape from that, some feeling that there's something new. And I remember I did learn a a ton too. And so there were, and she, she was also a writer. And so a 
a fair number of the posts are things that she wrote that gave me a lot of insight into into her and, and her struggles, which helped me on, on a road I was already on, which was trying to accept her struggles, even where they made things hard for me yeah. and letting go of that. And, you know, of course I, every, you know, I would have new thoughts or new perspectives or learn something I would post about that. And then there are just a lot of examples of how my daily life and my thoughts were colored by grieving, you know, my relationship to the pillows on Amy's side of the bed and what that meant, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because uh-huh. when I, the moment I walked in the house after I got back from the hospital, the day she died, I was just completely overwhelmed by the fact that everything within 50 miles was all about her because I had left Portland and moved to a new town to be with her. And so we built an entirely new life together. Yeah. And every, yeah. So everything that I was familiar with, everything I knew about the entire area was all about her. Yeah. And she was gone. I just, that, I just, I remember sitting on the couch just being completely overwhelmed by that. Yeah. Cause she stitched to everything. You know, I, I call that, I call that the center tent pole. You know, that the, that when the center tent pole goes down, the whole tent comes down. Yeah. That you can have a outside pole go down and it will impact you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your whole life doesn't make sense. And one of the things that, you know, there are these standard things that people have to feel in, in really, in, in very significant loss that feels to them like no one has ever felt it before. And that loss of identity and complete confusion makes perfect sense when you're tethered to this person in all the minutes, even when they're not around. My mom died suddenly in her sleep while I was on vacation with her and I had PTSD afterwards. And as I was healing, I was sitting on the couch and I was looking up at this mantle. I, I wrote about it and I, and everything on the mantle was connected to my mom. There was like a painting mm-hmm. that was of near her. There were candlesticks that she bought. There were shells from her beach. And I was like, Jesus, that's just one mantelpiece in my house. Like that's uh-huh. just one six foot board in my house. Like if I were to, is anything in this, is anything in my life somehow not hand stamped by the fact that this woman was my mother? And yeah. there's, there's a, a really wonderful teacher, educator, and scientist, Mary Frances O'Connor, who talks about, and I find such comfort in this, that our brains are just basically coding mechanisms. And that when we are attached to someone, and that is how we understand the world, that we go through it with this person, that when they are no longer there, we do not understand the world anymore. Uh-huh. And that our brain has to code it totally differently. And that's why people say it feels like you lost an arm because you are navigating the world, you know, with, without an attachment. And it, it does make you feel really crazy and it's incredibly hard to do. And, and time helps, but it doesn't help you in the grocery store when you walk past this. I mean, you would be stunned at how often the grocery store comes up. Just no, I actually, I would not. <laughs> it is, yeah, I, that wouldn't surprise me at all. It destroys people. I think it is the simple ways because I think really 
most of the way that we love each other and we are connected to each other is very everyday and not complicated and not big moments. I think it's, I think it's Billy Joel songs and, you know, snacks and, you know, exits on a highway. And so it doesn't take much to really feel yourself just reverberating with the loss of someone over something really small. How does your grief show up differently for you now than when you wrote the book? I'm always interested in this because I think of, I think of grief writers, memoirists, people who are doing journals for, you know, basically for the rest of us, that that actually is a tool. It's like a therapeutic tool that help that is helping you and ultimately helping someone else. But at some point we, we say, here's the word count. I've done the line edits. Uh-huh the title. So, so how is it different now that the book is finished and out there in the world? How are you, do you have another grief practice? Do you navigate grief in a different way? Are you writing a second book? Well, cry, I mean, crying for me has been the number one thing by far. I mean, when I say crying, I mean, sobbing and wailing really. Yeah. yeah. That I, it has been my primary way of grieving the entire time yeah actually because I I was fortunate when I was living in Portland before Amy and I got together to have done a ton of counseling and to have built you know a foundation and and learned some tools there and so one of the things I had learned is that while all of my feelings are completely valid and they're, you know, there's an explanation for all of, for everything that, you know, that I feel and go through and all of that. Feelings are not necessarily good guides to reality. That's right. You know, and I mean, one example is one of the things that felt a lot early on was I can't do this. Yeah. And I just, you know, and I'm, so I'm, I'm fortunate that I, I had that foundation. So I knew that that feeling was not literally true. Yeah. And what that enabled me to do was to feel the full intensity of the feelings without worrying that I was going to be overwhelmed by them or anything like that. God, that is a, I, I don't think anyone on this podcast has ever said that so eloquently and so significantly, but I think most people, this particularly happens when parents lose children, the thing that people say to them all the time, and it makes those parents insane is, oh, I could never do that. I could never live through it. I mean, nobody has ever once been like, well, I've really thought about my child dying or my wife dying. And I think I could do it. It'd be fine. You know, <laughs> it's just like not a thing that anyone has ever thought. And the reality is we grow our capacity to grieve, like learning to be a short order cook while the restaurant is open and need right. like, you know, eggs on table four. So, so, and there's, there's nothing that we can do about that. Like even I'm a big proponent of teaching grief education, even grief education is not going to actually teach you to be a griever. You have, you do learn that, you know, it's on the job training, but being someone who is familiar with the electrical currents and identifying, you know, there's this word in therapy, alexithymia, which basically means like, you don't know what you're feeling. You have never taken the feeling words and attached them to what the sensations are in the body. But of course, grief is embodied. You know, some people would tell you that they feel it in their stomach. Other people feel it behind their eyes. They, and many of us 
will tell you that this is the way that I feel. I, this is the word. And really what I'm doing is that I'm, I'm interpreting a sensation and you might be right, but what Mm. happens in therapy is a lot of times I say, are you sure that's not fear? Are you sure that's not anger? Is it possible that could be dread? And then we're just sort of increasing someone's vocabulary. What you're describing is you had already, you already had a capacity to be a feeler. Yeah. You came into this impossible experience. I don't know that it makes it easier, but I do think you're describing that it made it feel to some degree safe. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't worried that I was going to, you know, lose it or, you know, anything like that. I knew that I could feel the full awfulness of everything and that I would come out on the other end. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think that's a really big deal because I do hear from a lot of people that they are not sure that it is safe to, you know, you've described being able to really, I, I I call it keening, you know, the thing where Uh you really physically like, like pushing a boulder with all your might, like really giving yourself into the full body experience of crying. And what I know is I know it both as a griever and as a clinician, but I know that when you don't let yourself do that, you are probably using two times the amount of energy to keep it from happening. And that's not great. Yeah. And that was another motivating factor for me from the beginning. In fact, it's in the very first thing that I posted, which is that I, I I knew enough. I had to get it out or it was going to run my life. I didn't want that. Yeah. Yeah. So does that mean it's not running your life now? Yeah. So to, to go yeah. back to the question you you asked, initially, of course, very first, I was just, you know, sobbing uncontrollably all the time. I couldn't sleep because I would lie down in bed and be consumed by, you know, the fact that she was gone. Everything reminded me of that. And over time, the thing that really stuck the most as a, a practice, I guess you could say, is is taking just, you know five or ten minutes every night before I go to bed to give my grief some space. Whatever you know, however busy the day had been, whatever I'd been through, I wanted to give it some space every day. Remind myself that I was still hurting, that it was still there, and so that that has become the thing I do every night. I <laughs> I figured out recently how to how to characterize kind of even keel that I, I've reached, which is that I I give my grief it's space, you know, I acknowledge that it's there. And in return, it doesn't tell me what to do. I love that. You guys are in the same car, not bossing each other around. <laughs> That's right. You're not trying to kick it out of the car and it's not telling you how to drive. That's right. Yeah. That's really, you know, so I don't know. I always think of this as such a strange thing, but, but you just described what I call a grief practice. I also ask my grievers about their grief hygiene, you know, like, like how good is your health? You know, do you take your vitamins? Do you shower? Do you brush your teeth? Do you grieve? And so what is, what is the practice? And so when I'm coaching people into grieving, I want them to have an understanding of what works for them. You already in your own body have described a sense of safety that many grievers, when they come into it, don't have. So sometimes they need to be with someone else either a therapist or it could just be, you know, a sister or cousin or a friend 
but just, they need somebody around because they, in order to get into their feelings, they need to know that someone will be there if, yeah. you know, things go south, but that's part of the practice. What, what I always think about, and I was a teenager when I saw this movie, but a million and 11 years ago, there was a movie that came out called broadcast news with Holly Hunter and William Hurt and, you know, a bunch of other actors that aren't alive anymore. Cause that's how old I am. And they show this scene. I mean, ostensibly the, the movie is this sort of feminist story about a woman who's in journalism, which is mostly a, a, a mm-hmm. man's world, but right. there's just this one scene that they don't even really explain where she is in a hotel. She unplugs the phone before cell phones. And then she just begins sobbing. And then about three minutes later, she plugs it back in and like wipes her eyes and goes on with her day. And I, I can't that. really tell you what else happens in the movie, but this is long before I had really reason to clock it. I think about that all the time because they don't even tell you what she's crying about, but you know that this woman has something to cry about because mm-hmm. most of us do. And you just describe something really similar, which is at the end of each day, you give yourself some space. Yeah. I have a phrase with my husband after my, so my dad died and then my mom died shortly thereafter. And I say to my kids a lot, when they walk through the door, they're 14, 12 and 10. I say things like, how was your day? What do I need to know about your feelings from today? Like, I don't want to hear all the things about all the things. And I have one kid that would tell me all the things. I have another kid that wouldn't tell me anything, even if I like, you know, tortured him. Right. But I don't really care about the minutiae of it. I just want to know about your feelings. Mm-hmm. Like, did you have hurt feelings? Were you excited? Like, and also I don't want to know all of them. I just want to know the significant ones. <laughs> like, let's just check in. Do you need any support around that? Right. So that is something that I have friends that check in and say, just checking in on your feelings. And it's something that I ask my sister to do and husband to do, but just exactly what you're describing, which is I need a little help. I don't do it well on my own. I would create that grief practice and then not do it. Just like the meditation (laughs) where I'm like, you know, 20 minutes a day. And I, unless, unless I am held accountable or invited in, in some way, I I'm less effective, but it sounds like you're in a space now where you feel the feelings when they come up and are, and need attention. And they allow you some space in your life. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, 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 that's it. Yeah. I think there's an obsession a bit in when we do dig in and start talking about grief, about like transmuting the pain into something amazing, like (laughs) a foundation or a, you know, a bench at a library or something like that. I don't, Sometimes that drives me a little bit crazy because it's like, you know, resiliency or something where people like, we just want to focus on the good stuff that comes out of the bad stuff. So I say that, and I also believe that there is some life that happens after loss that mm-hmm. includes maybe mine, some new experience or maybe just the experience of what it's like to go through loss. Do you have things that exist in your life now, 18 months later, that are either more or different than before? I came to accept fairly early on that there was nothing wrong with my living my life the way it made sense for me right now. 100%. And and part of that, Amy, Amy had been unwell a lot. She had 
almost died a couple of times while we were together. And there was one point when she said to me, I possibly out of the blue, as she tended to do, that if she died, she wanted me to be happy. She wanted me to go on, you know, fall in love with, fall in love and be happy. She said that to me, which was an incredible gift. Yeah. You know, I had that conversation. Yeah, exactly. And so, and there were, there were some moments in the first months where I felt like I heard a voice in her head, in my head that was her, because it didn't sound like any of the, any of the normal voices in my head. <laughs> and there was a moment like that where she just said, it's okay, it's okay, you know? And so that, that made an enormous difference to yeah. feel like it was okay to make different choices, to do different things, to not do things that we, you know, that I, I was used to doing. That said, my life looks a lot like it did before. There are some things she enjoyed hiking and outdoor activities, but she hadn't been well enough for quite a number of years to have done any of that. And so I have enjoyed, you know, going for a bike ride here or a hike there, but, but yeah, it looks mostly the same. And part, part of that is, is a a product of where I live and the fact that I have three dogs and they're, I mean, their lives haven't changed. Yeah. Well, (laughs) in my, in my experience, I think and I've said this in lots of different places because there's no right, right way to grieve. So I just ask these questions really out of curiosity and to give people a chance to hear the wide spectrum of what it looks like. You uh. know, some people, they cut their hair, quit their job, move to a foreign country and, you know, go back to dance like they did when they were in high school. And I, to me, I think, wow, that makes sense because there's so much energy that's created in the loss of someone that it's almost like a jetpack, and it sent you huh. on this mission. And, and to some degree, I had a little bit that experience when my mom died, I just couldn't sit still and I needed novelty. And, but my dad had died two years earlier and I felt like I sat down in the chair of my life and the roots went down into the ground and they sort of like went up into the sky. I felt more deeply settled in my life and my choices than I had ever before. And so I really was just, you know, my life looked the same when, when I lost my dad, I just had been through something. Yeah. So there, I don't think there's any right way. I just think that it's interesting in the way in which sort of our instincts show us how to carry, you know, how to carry the loss. How do we carry it into, yeah. Into our lives. Yeah. And one, one thing that also played into it is my, my aunt gave me the advice from her experience of losing her first husband suddenly at at a young age to not make any big decisions for the first year. And that sounded like a sensible thing. So I I went with that and boy, am I glad I did (laughs) because it would have been so easy. It's, you know, various points given the, how just overwhelming and, and intense and raw the feelings were to have made decisions out of those feelings, not realizing that the feelings would be transitory, not in the sense of going away, but yeah, that, that but maybe, yeah, would, just, would, yeah, it, it wasn't going to be like that all, all the time. And there yeah. are some, even there are, are even still, there are some minor decisions I made like giving stuff away that I yeah. think I did too soon. So when I'm talking to grievers, often I'm talking about intensity. What's the intensity level of your feeling? And does it feel like you're being pushed or pulled? Right. So, you know, one 
for example, the things, that's a question that people often call me as if I can answer it, right? Huh. Like you're a grief expert. When should I, you uh, know, clean out the closet, give away the things, do the yep. stuff. And, and what's interesting is the world at large has a lot of feeling about this. Yes. There's a, there's a woman that I know her daughter died by suicide. They immediately cleaned out her room. Mm-hmm. They immediately gave up and boy, did people have a lot to say <laughs> about whether or not that was the right thing to do. And you and I know people don't know anything. They don't know anything about how it feels to be the parent or the mother or the daughter or whatever in that situation. So, you know, keep your ideas about what you would do in that situation. Maybe hold that close because (laughs) it's just an imagination that you think, you know, but I do say to people generally, if you are not sure, don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you don't have now, listen, if you have to sell your parents' house because, you know, you have, you need the money and all that stuff, then, then then that giving away of the clothes may be a secondary trauma that you have to sort of process later. But if you don't have to, you're not going to forget to do it Yeah. at some point. And who cares if it's 10 years from now, it's not harming anyone. If those clothes are sitting in the closet and it takes you 10 years before you can say, you know what, it's, I can do this now. Then it's 10 years. And that is what it is. But for other people, so if someone were to ask me, I would be answering for me here in my body and my energy. This is what I think is right for me. I have no idea what's right for somebody else. Yeah, exactly. And so to let people sort of say like, there actually isn't a right answer about this, but your system will tell you, you know, if it really is driving you crazy that, I don't know, you're spouse's clothes are in your closet and you're not sure if you're supposed to give them away, pack them up and put them in the garage and see if that feels right. Right. Titrate it out to see, because nobody knows because nobody's done this before because you're the only one that can do it. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of the rules that I hit on relatively early was that not just about clothes, but again, because we had built this life together. And so everything in, you know, the house reflected us, but more so her, because she had more opinions about how she wanted things to be. But basically, I decided early on that I wasn't going to make any changes just to change something that I, there needed to be a good reason, some, you know, a, a practical reason, like to make space for something else or, yeah. or whatever that, but that I, I just, I wasn't going to act on that. Like, oh, I feel like it's been long enough now and some timer has gone off and I should do something. I, <laughs> I didn't want to get caught up in that. Yeah. Cause there are no timers. No, there aren't. And again, we're just really the person that we're taking care of ourselves. We're taking care of through grief is ourself. Mm. And when you're an author and a writer, you're generous enough to share your own experience so that someone may learn from it. But in general, really it's about, you know, it's about making sure that it, works for you yeah you are inventing a life in front that is tenable and possible and you know it doesn't feel that way when on the first day or the second day or the the first year yeah I think one of the things that can happen when we have gone through a terrible loss is that there's a lot of thinking about what has been lost and I, I really like to ask people if you would like to share 
about your person and maybe even just the ways in which you miss them. You know, one of the things that's really painful, right, is how you miss them, but it also is how you love them. And so when I talk about my dad, I just like anytime anyone's playing opera or there was a really good tennis game, I just like miss him because he would have liked that part of life. That was the stuff he liked to do. And anytime there's like a ridiculous story or something gets really screwed up or my kids do something I want to brag about, I just miss the hell out of my mom because she was the person I called who would like amplify that experience. And so I'm asking you a ridiculous question. (laughs) You can't cull it down, but even just, you know, whatever pops into your mind, I'd love to, I'd love to give you a second to just this, this loss that you experienced to just also just share the love of this person who clearly meant the world to you. Yeah. Yeah. She really did. So Amy and I met my, our sophomore year in college. She was just there for a year. And we got along well, we exchanged some really sweet letters. And what stuck with me about her was her sense of humor. That that playful rapport was the thing that really stuck. And so when we reconnected 20 something years later, we picked that up right as though it had been yesterday, which is a remarkable experience. Yeah. Got my attention. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) That was the thing that I loved most and I enjoyed most about our interactions and our relationship was the playfulness and the sense of humor and the fact that one one of us could make a joke about something or say something you know silly and the other person would just be right there and pick up with it and you know we just kind of riff off each other I have a pretty well-developed silly side and so <laughs> having you know having someone in the middle of my life who created a safe space to, sh- to, to show that and was, you know, again, we did that for each other, I think, because she, she had that, she had that side and, you know, she had to be that way with her daughter. But I, when I look at her, you know, her life in that span of time between when we met initially and when we got together, I wonder if she had a place for that part of her. So I think we gave each other that space. You know, I just example, some, some random examples. Yeah. I, I, the first time I harvested fingerling potatoes from our garden, I left them on the, the kitchen counter. And next time I came back into the kitchen, she had spelled a word with the, the pota- little potatoes. <laughs> and so we went back and forth all day long, spelling different words. What topped it all was Amy finally spelled out, I love you more than cheese, which was a big <laughs> thing for her to say because she really loved cheese. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, if that's our takeaway, we're going to remember that she loved cheese. Have you seen Ricky Gervais's Afterlife? Have you watched that TV show? Not Afterlife, no. No. So they He's lost his wife and they show her in his memory. So they're, they're video clips and they are a very playful couple. He's, uh, you know, constantly scaring her, putting faces on the fruit or... It's a, it's a, it's a show that's very funny, but also very true to just, you know, the deep, deep pain of what it's like to, I think you're, you're describing with real beauty, what it means when we are experiencing this loss. And when people say I lost, you know, part of myself, it's because we co-create these relationships Mm -hmm. and they are uniquely tethered to this one person. 
Right. So yes, I, you know, I lost this person who I love, but I also lost this person that I got to be a certain way with. And yeah. this summer, my husband and I went to the beach with his family and my mom, my mom and dad lived at the beach in Massachusetts. And I was so grateful to be back at a beach swimming in, a, in the sand but the amount of just sheer grief I had at it not being the way I normally am at the beach with yeah. a kind of comfort level and just sort of relaxation, because when I'm with my mother and father, it feel we have co-created a relationship that feels totally different than any other relationship I have. And right. that, that doesn't exist in the present day. It exists in my memory and I can evoke it, but it, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I, I have my end, but, but I don't have it in a living format. And I think you just described that you were that for her and she was that for you. And yeah. loss, you know, it's an enormous loss when you think of it that way. Yeah. And it was eye-opening to me to look at it from in, in hindsight, because <laughs> like I, like I mentioned, I've, I've, gained so much perspective in the course of of grieving and you know I had I had sort of fairly well developed I thought perspectives on relationships going into my my marriage with Amy and losing her kind of blew that all out of the water I knew that I loved her sense of humor and her playfulness and that that was a big thing of what I loved about us but it was only after the fact that I realized that actually met a, a deep need for me yeah. And in the meanwhile, I spent a lot of time feeling resentful about the needs that weren't getting met. Sure. Sure. You know, so <laughs> that's marriage right there, right? I mean, that's the Yeah. That's there I think it's I'm pretty sure it's the poet Christina Rossetti who has this line that says I love you not only for who you are but who I am when I'm with you. Yeah. And I think I think we're still our imperfect selves, no matter what the romantic poets would yeah. want us to believe and that we can adore and love someone for all the things that they brought out. And also remember that, you know, it didn't there, there were other ways that I felt shortchanged or, you know, resentful yeah. or because that's, you know, that's the truth. That's the truth of real life relationships instead of the ones that they put in Hollywood movies. Yeah. And I think that's also another part of what people responded to originally when I was posting on Facebook, because I was sharing yeah. the dark moments and the hard stuff in our relationship too, and the struggles that we had both had. Such a uh, gift. I mean, the truth is always a gift. And again, because we don't have enough core education and we don't have enough stories that anyone who's willing to tell us the truth is, you know, I think it's a bit like a, a light in the dark that we're all sort of drawn to. I hope that this podcast was a pleasant experience for you. You have given me a lot to think about, and I just have a lot of warmth about your story and your experience. And again, the way that you talk really plainly about, you know, the full on full context sport of grieving and, <laughs> you know, how you have to kind of condition yourself and do it. If people want to know more about your work and your writing, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably to go to my website, which is my name, johnworsley.name. Yep. There is a dot name. The I've dot never name. Seen, seen one anywhere else, but I use it. Yeah, I have links to the 
different platforms where the book is available and links to be on different places on the internet That's as great. well as let's see links to the two short films you alluded to that Amy and I made and other stuff that I've written and stuff I'm working on. That's great. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes and just thank you. Thank you for reaching out and well, thank, thank you, you for being part of this conversation. And I'm, I, you know, Amy sounds like an awful lot to live without. So I wish yeah. you really, really good luck in your continued journey, even though 18 months is a long time, it's still pretty fresh. Yeah. It really and, is. Yeah. And I hope you keep writing. I, I you know, and giving that gift to all of us. Thanks so okay. much. Take care, John. Bye.